sheep will live in corrals of neighborhoods when society comes of age. Anthony T. Hicks Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening regularly, and uh, any new viewers, welcome. Um, this week, we're going to start moving east from the Tigris and Euphrates rivers to talk about the peoples living in modern-day Iran, um, Central Asia, and then, of course, eventually into India. And to start uh, to start that process and focus for this part of our timeline, which, again, is 8,000 to 6,000 BC, BCE, um, where you get to discuss a couple of sites and people or peoples who were on the periphery of the groups we talked about last time and with the aforementioned groups um, though they are very important to the region if not the world um, these peoples occupied uh, a very small plain to the south and east of uh, Mesopotamia proper or at least the regions that most people would consider Mesopotamia in, like, in popular discussion and imagination as well as sections of the Zagros Mountains um, the site located in the plains sees a number of rivers that flow down from the mountains to meet either the Tigris, the Tigris's confluence point with Euphrates, or into the Persian Gulf. Um, some of these rivers are known today as uh, Karun, uh, Karkek, and the Dez. Um, and this region will eventually become home to the city of Susa and then later to the Elamite people, or Elam, is another uh, location and, uh, I guess, a group that will be talked about um, in our future episodes. Uh, but this, this area is kind of always on the periphery of some of the more discussed societies um, in, the, in the region, the uh, of course, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians. Um, these people are very big players in that story and in those histories, but they're not really focused on as well. And that's true of uh, the rest of, I, oh, well, at least the rest of modern-day Iran uh, and Persia. You have um, the Medes and the Persians are more well-known than the Elamites or Susa, though, again, they play an important right in, or an important role in those stories as well so this this area that we're going to be talking about today is it's always kind of to the side even though it again it is a very vital part of any discussion of the region uh, but first though um, the first site that I want to focus on in these areas is uh, Ganjdara uh, and this is located in one of the numerous valleys that rest between um, peaks of the Zagros Mountains. Uh, its name means Treasure Valley in Persian. Um, and occupation of this site began sometime around 8500 to 8000 BC. Uh, it's not 100% sure, but it's, it's starting around this time. And this site is home to the earliest evidence of goat and sheep domestication. 
Um, and for a more in-depth explanation of that process, I recommend listening to my special on uh, domestication of animals. It's one of the ones that we kind of did a few uh, months ago, um, which of course you can find in our backlog. And um, I hope to have that part up on YouTube. I've only put up a couple episodes last week. I'm going to try to put up a few more this week. Um, but to simplify uh, and just kind of give a brief summary of what I talked about in that episode, um, at least when it comes to evidence of domestic animals, um, there is evidence of the wild ancestors of sheep and goats slowly being replaced by domesticated or near domesticated versions um, of those animals, which can be hard to see in the cases of bones because at least in the early specimens of semi-domesticated versions of those animals um, there's not necessarily a whole lot of difference in most of the bones there may be only a few that show a large difference Um, and there's also a rise in the amount of male to female bones as well as the ages of the animals killed Um, so you can see basically uh, when they're hunting from wild animals they're for you know just for um, just odd sake there's not necessarily going to be a huge difference in between the number of wild female and male um, skeletons or bones Uh, But as you get to the domesticated period, you're going to see a lot more young males killed as opposed to young females. And then, of course, then you will see more mature females killed over mature males because there are fewer males. Uh, Generally, you want to keep the males around longer uh, just to kind of keep the herd in check and in control, Uh, whereas... um, you know, you'll be you'll be killing or sacrificing the the younger males to kind of limit the amount of competition you have in the herd on the male leadership side. So um, you very you see very clear signs and evidence of control. But again, listen to the domestication episode. I I went into a much better and clearer explanation there. Um, I'm just kind of going roughly off my head, and then some brief notes I took just to remind myself for this episode. Um, These people also have carved animal and humanoid figures um, made out of wood or carved into stones. Um, And there is some debate about whether this is the oldest example of this art found in this region or if it was maybe one of the sites in the Middle East. There is a, you know, I've seen a couple of disputed dates. Um, But what I think this does show is that there is, you know, a certain level of equality, at least in terms of artistic or spiritual thought put into these types of objects. Um, That this is something that these groups are developing close enough to each other that this may have been something that was being done earlier. Um, Or, you know, it's something that both groups kind of came up with simultaneously and not necessarily uh, because of one group or another transferring that knowledge. But, um, again, 
it's hard to say or know for sure. But these people also developed a kind of clay which was used in buildings as well as geometric and figurative art um, later. Uh, so these people are probably slightly ahead on the ceramic side of, um, I guess, this process of uh, civilization or you know, or advancement from hunting gathering lifestyles. Um, whereas the other groups maybe were a little bit slower to get ceramics, um, at least in the region we're talking about, and maybe didn't have animals quite as early. Uh, but there is one thing that these people are kind of showing a, a lack of progress on, or at least um, not as much progress as the other peoples in Anatolia or the Levant. And that is the, um, the uh, agricultural side of things. Um, they only have, or we only have evidence of one strain of domestic plants at this site, and that's a kind of barley. The rest are all wild strains. Um, and there have, um, you know, I, I think for this site specifically, that that never changes. I think the amount of domesticated food does increase somewhat, or I'm sorry, the amount of domesticated plants increases slightly, but it still never overtakes the wild um, pl uh, plants that they obtain. Um, it becomes a higher percentage, but it still doesn't break. I, I think the numbers were around 25%. So most of their plant foods are um, wild strains. Um, another important find for this site uh, has been DNA-based. Um, this region sees um, habitation earlier than... Uh, 8,500. 8, um, so some of these uh, remains are not associated with uh, Ganjdara directly. They were just in the region and may have been slightly older. And then the people you uh, see that are involved with um, the animal domestication and crop growing, this is a, a later group of these people. There is some um, overlap in their DNA, um, but there is also some slight differences. Um, so it's not 100% the same group just living there. There is still in and out migration that has caused alterations to the later groups from the earlier finds. Um, but the, excuse me, but the, I guess the remains associated with this site uh, they actually have a female she was somewhere between 30 and 50 years old um, her DNA shows that she is um, or was I should say um, uh, belong to um, haplogroup X now, I'm not going to go into a great detail on haplogroups. I've mentioned them slightly when I talked about um, mitochondrial Eve in our first episode, or at least the concept of them. Um, but I'm just not the best at explaining kind of this hard 
sciences like this. Um, I, I am thinking about doing a special on it at some point. But if you're super interested, I would suggest you kind of look into it. Um, but essentially, again, haplogroups shows um, large groups uh, rather than individual uh, migrations. It's showing groups of humans kind of living and interacting with each other. Uh, and then, you know, it you can kind of trace how these groups migrated from each other. Um, haplogroup X, the one that this woman was involved are yeah, associated with um, X is very prevalent in actually very long distance uh, places. Um, I think the highest concentration of I guess DNA that um, this X um, group passed on is located in uh, the Middle East. Uh, there are a group known as the Druze, or the Druze Assyrians, um, and that's D-R-U-Z-E. Um, they have around 23%. Um, that's at the highest concentration. There are obviously some that have slightly less than that. Um, but that that's, that's the group with the highest concentration of haplogroups ex-ancestry um, in the old world in Europe um, it's a very small number in Europe I think nowhere exceeds 3% there are some others in Africa the Horn of Africa specifically um, that's also very low uh, but then you also have a small kind of exclave just up in Central Asia just a very small region um, it's not connected to the groups in um, the Middle East or Europe, and it's not connected to the other groups that see large amounts of this, and that is the people living in um, North America. Uh, specifically, I think Canada, Northeast U.S. have the highest concentration. <laughs> there are a couple of tribes that, again, you'll see around 23 or so percent Um of that uh, haplogroup, uh, like identical haplogroup stuff passed on. Um, but all that means is that these people shared a common ancestor. I think it's somewhere between, I want to say that X was around 26,000 years ago, give or take 5,000 years. So um, the last common ancestor is even further back than this by at least 8,000 years. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind. Uh, we're, we're not even sure when this group uh, came about. But what this means is that she was more closely related to the hunter-gatherers living in the Caucasus than these early farmers to her west. Uh, so she's closer to the people living in the mountains that we talked about last time than the people living in Mesopotamia in the last episode, or to the people living in Anatolia, or in uh, the Levant, or along you know the coast uh, leading into northern Egypt. Um, but as we talked about last time, we can see that those hunter-gatherers in the Caucasus, kind of towards the mid part of this current time frame, you know the seven thousand 
or so time, they are intermarrying with the Anatolians and not just um, the peoples we're going to be talking about in this next episode. So bear that in mind. That's going to kind of make things a little bit harder or a little bit more uh, difficult to trace and work out. Uh, But from her DNA markers, we know that she had dark hair, that she had brown eyes, and she was lactose intolerant, which makes sense. Um, This is, again, the first couple of uh, generations of people's keeping animals. Uh, They are not using them for dairy or anything like that just yet. Uh, They're still using them primarily for food, leather, and possibly... um, Maybe at this part, uh, things for wool or yarn or something like that. Uh, milking and dairying does not show up until a little bit later um, in this region. Um, so just bear that in mind. Um, I think they there is some debate about her skin color. Um, she doesn't carry... Um, what's known as the MATP gene, um, or the variant of the MATP gene. Everyone has that gene, uh, but depending on your ancestry um, and your modern-day skin tone, you you may have a specific variant that causes your skin to be lighter or darker. She does not have the one that most would associate with white Europeans, but she does have a mutation that would be slightly lighter than what you would see in Africa. She probably had um, light brown or golden brown skin. And of course, uh, that's just naturally. But of course, being outside most of the time, um, barring some uh, some occasion probably uh, indoors during the winter or uh, during bad weather, uh, her skin would probably end up being darker even than her DNA would suggest. And that's not surprising. Um, you don't really see white skin too white, widespread outside of the northern climes and latitudes until, in some cases, in some places, the Iron Age. Um, but again, that's speculation. We don't really have too many DNA sources from that time to make too big of a generalization, but um, that's what the evidence kind of suggests, at least right now. Uh, You might think of her maybe having something similar to some of the Khoisan groups in South Africa, uh, maybe in terms of skin tone. Uh, But again, that's all debated. Um, Some of the other DNA finds in this region are very important, even though, again, they're not necessarily associated with the Ganj Dara. But... um, this is the region that they found the earliest source of the R1B haplogroup, um, which is you know a fairly widespread one. Um, it's one of the ones most associated with, uh, I think, Europe. Um, though, again, we know that that subclade existed earlier, just due to you know comparative DNA. But this is the earliest source that we directly have of it. So. Just, just bear all this in mind. Um, now, the next site I want to talk about is Ali Kosh. 
Now, this is located between uh, the Nar Aktib and uh, I'm going to butcher this. Forgive me, any uh, Persian speakers, but uh, Dawariji rivers. Um, now, the sources on this site are a little bit inconsistent um, with some of the earlier sources um, and uh, the first excavation of the site, which was in the 60s. Uh, 1960s said that uh, regular consistent human habitation of the site started around 9500 BCE Um, though that has been challenged and revised uh, to a range of time uh, up to 8500 BCE um, and again that was disputed a little bit more uh, in 2018, there's been some new excavations and kind of reassessments based on this new data and the new evidence they were finding with different techniques. Excuse me. Um, so, um, there probably were people in those older periods, but this wasn't a site that saw a lot of human habitation, and if if it was, it was probably very transitory. They wouldn't probably have stayed in that region for very long until about um, 8,200 and definitely no later than 7,500. Um, at which point you see the, the site l- see a lot of static populations. Now, Ali Kosh was a settlement of a group practicing agriculture and herding. So this group probably got more sources of domesticated crops from the peoples living in Mesopotamia to their west. Uh, And they were probably trading possibly some domesticated animals, which I think we see uh, kind of for sure at that same time period. Um, So this is a site that has a mixed reliance on not just plants and animals, but also on domesticated strains of both. Um, There are, of course, uh, in addition to that barley, uh, we have legumes and peas are entering the diet. And I think, again, early examples of domesticated version of those crops. Um, They also took advantage of the nearby rivers to hunt um, waterfowl, turtles, and fish uh, as well. Uh, And of course, again, at the early period of the 7500 BC, uh, the amount of domesticated crops is still serving as a supplement to wild grasses and plants. Um, And I think the estimates say that the, the domesticated crops made up between 10 to 20 percent of plant foodstuffs but as time goes on this amount will of course increase uh, percentage now a lot of the wild and domestic strains were used for um, making porridge or gruel Um, they have a lot of um, uh, containers that show kind of evidence of that type of meal now the early houses at the site skip the rounded houses 
that you see in the PPNA periods in the Levant and Anatolia, and they go straight to small rectangular homes with uh, rammed earth walls. Um, they didn't have a large amount of lumber, I'm supposing, uh, for that, or at least maybe it was too valuable to use for homes if they may have needed it for um, fuel for fires and things of that nature. Um, or, you know, it may have been just too much trouble to cut down larger trees um, when you have a lot of earth available. And, of course, you living kind of in this area with a lot of uh, reeds and things like that from the rivers and wetlands in the area. Um, those might have been good to make not only baskets, but also make kind of rudimentary lamps and things like that uh, instead of having to chop down trees for large amounts of wood. Uh, but again, that's just speculation a little bit on my part. Um, also, these houses, um, they are not single room, which is a case you see in a lot of the early sites of the Middle East. And then later they develop as a, you know, a secondary room or storage area. These houses seem to have that from the start. And again, those smaller sectioned off rooms are probably used for, again, storage. Um, and then over the course of the following 250 to 500 years, so right up until 7,000 BC, um, we see the houses become larger. And, of course, the burial of the dead under the floors of these homes. And these peoples are interred with some types of grave goods. Um, and this is not always present in other places that bury people under their homes. I talked about the, the Chattelhoyuk people. Uh, they only ever buried children with grave goods or gifts. Adults were never ornamented as far as I could tell. Now, also at this time, pottery and ceramics appear uh, at this 7,000 BCE time frame. Um, Another factor um, of these uh, of this site is that the people all have had altered skulls. Um, now, this is a fairly popular practice in parts of Iran at this time and in the upcoming Copper Age. Um, how this was done is that they would, of course, when an individual was still young, an infant or toddler, um, they would kind of wrap the head with some type of binding or something like that to kind of prevent the bones from fusing their standard way and kind of um, alter shape to something a little bit more desirable by the people living there. Uh, and of course, this is not just happening on Iran. There are other places that practice this uh, as well, but that's the one... Um, region that I'm aware of that practice it uh, at this time, or at least the one group of people practicing it at this region at this time. Um, another interesting fact about these people is that they also intentionally remove teeth and not for your health reasons, as one might expect. Um, it seems that they remove the right incisor of all adult males. And this was done um, 
there is evidence of remove, like purposely remove teeth ritually. Um, in early sites um, of the Natufian period, in a couple of sites associated with that culture. But it's not seen in other parts of the Levant um, after that period. So this is a process that disappeared in the Levant, but maybe was carried over to this region. Um, you'll also see some places in Africa with this same or a similar type of uh, coming of age ritual or um, something like that. Though I could not get confirmation if either the Natufians or the African groups removed the same right incisor or if it was a different tooth that was being removed. Now, after 7000 BCE, the houses become made of stones, and the dead are actually buried in a separate location, um, kind of on the outskirts of the site. Uh, it is four locations specifically for the dead. And then, of course, you also see an uptick in tools um, made not just of your standard uh, chert or anything like that, but uh, flint and obsidian. You see, so you see, of course, more microliths, these smaller blades. And you also see more specialized tools like sickles and mortars and pestles. And, of course, uh, there have been remains of baskets or something similar to that. Um, very small amounts of that stuff, but it, you know, because of the drier nature of some of the places around here, um, some small bits have been recovered. And there is also evidence of trade with numerous groups surrounding them, not just, of course, the advancement and in number of domesticated types of crops from barley, but also. Um, you see them have decorative pieces of turquoise and even copper. Now, this is raw copper. It has not been smelted or anything like that. Um, it's just the stuff that you could see kind of on the surface level. And it's only very small nuggets or pieces of copper. And it had been... You know, they had been just essentially hammered to kind of get a shape, a simple shape, probably for something to be tied to it or for it to maybe be inserted into something. Um, it's essentially treated as a very shiny and hard and pretty stone, but it's ultimately just um, aesthetic. It's not, it's not used in any utilitarian nature yet. Um, now this is kind of debated, but I think this is the earliest evidence of copper being used for that, but there's not copper in this region, at least that I'm aware of. I didn't see it listed. I think you'd see it a little bit more to the, um, northwest or to the east, but again, I, I need to double check that, but I know that there's not copper, at least that they found I think at this specific place. So while this may be the earliest place it's been found, it's not probably the earliest place it was um, excavated. 
or dug up or mined. Um, so, again, this kind of plays into my old theory. Of course, that the earliest example of something we found is probably not the first. So, um, there are probably some other places that dug this copper up. Say, hey, this looks pretty. Um, let's see if we can get some stuff for it. And, um, you know, took it from there. Um, and then, of course, I imagine that... Um, copper becoming so important later as a utilitarian item um any pieces that you could find lying around if you you know if you weren't a rich people you would want as much copper as possible so uh, one of the strengths of metals as we'll talk about later um is its ability to be reused or reforged or what have you um so it's very possible that earlier examples of copper um used for aesthetic reasons um, may have been repurposed uh, to more utilitarian items or maybe just better looking aesthetic items. Who knows for sure. Uh, But it is is at this point in time, uh, give or take a couple hundred years, um, that humans have started to use metal uh, here and now. not again, not for any practical reason, but for aesthetic reasons. Um, so, uh, trade of copper and turquoise, um, and then we move. Um, yes, so uh, we also see an increase of decorations on pots and clay or terracotta figures, uh, and of. Uh, animals um, and people. Uh, again, there's always the possibility that these are religious. Uh, there are some potential female figures, which again, possibly playing into the Earth Goddess Association, or it could just be any other type of goddess. It does not necessarily have to be a type of uh, agricultural deity at this point. It could be another type of female association. Um, now, this site uh, is abandoned by 6,500 BCE. Um, why it was abandoned, I don't, again, don't have a firm answer. I don't think people like speculating too much on this. Um, what probably happened is that the site, um, which did not have a huge population, these, these places that we're talking about, um, I don't think they ever got to a thousand people. It's just a, maybe maybe a hundred or so, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and it was probably difficult to maintain the kind of crops they needed, or um, keep enough animals close by and protected to support their population. Uh, the people living here probably moved to somewhere that could support um, more plants and animals and thus support more humans Um, the same could probably be said of Ganjdara which um, was abandoned before um, uh, Ali Kosh Um, but probably again for similar reasons Um, now these are not the only two sites uh, in this region, there are a few others, around a dozen or so. As far as I know, there may be a little bit more. 
maybe one or two less. Um, these two sites themselves are about 120 miles or 100 and what 95 kilometers away. Um, Alikosh, of course, being more in a flat land with a little bit more water. Uh, Ganjdara is up one in one of the more uh, mountain valleys, um, and there, yeah, there are some around both of them, um, and there is genetic similarity between those people. They were probably very closely related. Um, possibly some descendants of people living in Kanjdara moved to Alikash, or at least cousins of descendants, uh, at the very least. Um, so there's definitely a lot of overlap of the peoples living in this region. Um, and of course, as time goes on, you will have more people moving into this area as well as people um, trading in this area with neighboring era areas. So you'll see a little bit more, um, you know, diversity to people living there. Um, also, uh, while the haplogroup X may have, you know, there may be other people, um, with a little bit more of that in their ancestry than, you know, um, others. I mean, no, I mentioned the Druze. However, the, I think they do have like people who are descended from the Ali Kosh group and they don't have as much of the haplogroup X kind of in that. So that's one of those things that you have to be careful of just because you belong to a haplogroup does not mean that you are, um, necessarily a descendant of someone else who belongs to that haplogroup. Um, but we'll get into that later. There's, again, I need to do a proper explanation of this DNA stuff. Uh, but just keep that in mind. Um, they're cousins, if nothing else, and very distantly related. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize that this episode is already over um, 35 minutes. I wanted to cover a little bit more for this week, but um, I guess I got distracted uh, talking about something or another. Uh, probably related to that domestication or uh, rambling about uh, haplogroups. Um, but I think this is a good place to start. Um, we're kind of just getting into what is modern day Iran. Um, and, you know, this is a very interesting location. Um, again, it's kind of on the periphery of, you know, the more well-known sites of Mesopotamia. Uh, and again, also in the people living in the um, mountains of Iran or, or the Iranian Plateau, um, which is which is odd considering that they do have their own distinct identity and culture, though there is some overlap, at least, especially with the Mesopotamian peoples, at least when it comes to um, religious deities. Though, again, that may have been due to a process of uh, synchronization, um, but that's all stuff we'll cover in the future because, again, those people have not showed up just yet. Uh, but you will see kind of a certain level of um, um, overlap with things like pottery or gods. Um, and, again, a certain level of political integration or interaction uh, in the future. Uh, so just keep that in mind. So... 
next week we shall return to Iran. We'll continue a little bit west. Uh, and then um, I've not decided if I want to go north into Central Asia first or if I want to go kind of to the southeast and start getting into um, the Hindu Kush area. But um, that's something I have to figure out. Uh, I'll, let, I'll surprise you guys next time with that. Uh, I do want to thank everyone for listening. Um, I know February is a slower month for a lot of people. Uh, and uh, I, I am pleased that um, it already seems to be ticking back up here in March uh, after... Uh, slower February um, I haven't even uploaded an episode in March and I already have over uh, you know, double digit downloads so thank you guys for supporting I know um, I know I appreciate or I hope you know that I appreciate it a lot and I hope you continue to listen and enjoy if you have any questions or feedback please feel free to reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com or if you uh, you prefer you can reach me on Twitter, uh, which I will have a link to on the um, description of the episode. Uh, you can send me a direct message there. Um, but thank you all. I hope you have a good rest of your evening and a good day. Goodbye.